One of the really powerful things about a full stack serverless app is that it can be shared and redeployed. So people can actually build out reference architectures and, and example projects that tie the front end and the back end together. If you want to teach something to someone, teach it in the way that you would want to have like taught it to yourself. What I wrote in this book was a distillation of kind of what I've learned over the last three years. And if I had just started at AWS, like this is the book I kind of would have written for myself. It's an amazing time to be a front-end developer. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we got Natter Dabbit. What's up, Natter? Hey, what's up, Brian? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Like uh, For our listeners, if you're normally just reading his blog post and never had the chance of seeing him speak at a conference... Natter was on episode number 32, talking about progressive web apps and AWS Amplify as well. And I, I think at the time, too, you were pretty pretty new to Amazon, specifically, uh, as an employee. So do you want to tell us what you've been up to since? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've been there now for a little over two and a half years. I started in January of 2018. And um, I have continued to work on the team that used to be the mobile team. And now we're kind of transitioning into the front end and mobile team. So we're kind of doing a lot of stuff with web. And we're consistently focused on improving the developer experience for AWS, specifically for devs that are typically front end or mobile developers that are not cloud developers. And we're really mainly focused on lowering the barrier to entry really for cloud computing and making it easy for developers to kind of use the existing skill set that they've had that they've been using to build things like uh, Jamstack apps, React apps, Vue, um, even iOS and Android, and kind of take that skill set. And we're trying to enable them to kind of apply it to build cloud apps. And that's really what I've been working on for the past couple of years. Yeah, that's what I was super impressed with uh, in our our original conversation and sort of lowering the barrier of entry to getting into mobile development, which was a specific thing the team you're working on, kind of in the tune of like Firebase. And we went in this conversation already, (laughs) but like things like that I enjoy with tools like Amplify, now that you're, you're working with, is that I don't have to make all the decisions up front. Like I can sort of opt them in. Is that still the case? when you leverage tools like that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we've we've done a lot of work around a, a CLI, which is essentially a cloud formation or infrastructure as code generator that is agnostic to the actual service names and all of the lingo and acronyms and naming that kind of goes along with understanding how the underlying infrastructure works and kind of we have a little higher of a level of an abstraction that allows you to use words that we're familiar with and terminology that we're used to saying, like authentication and APIs and GraphQL and stuff like that. And, you know, we're using the CLI as kind of the base for generating these cloud services. And it's it's just one of the few parts, though. And now we've built a lot of other things, uh, you know, into Amplify, I think, since we last talked. And, um, you know, we're now focused a lot on hosting and integrating all of these things together, the CLI, the client, and uh, the hosting. But you can also just kind of take one of these pieces and use them without using the other three pieces. So they work really well together, but they also really work well standalone. And that's just um, one of the things that we're trying to 
make easier, you know, to make people understand that they can do that, but also to make them work well together if they do choose to go that path. Cool. And uh, I'm curious too as well, because uh, part of the reasons uh, that you're back on the podcast uh, is because the book you just released. I haven't read the book yet. Uh, I hope to grab a copy soon, but the, the title is Full Stack Serverless. Uh, so I'm curious of, I guess, the title itself, but also how does that also encompass in some of the stuff you've been working with uh, with AWS as well? Yeah. So, I mean, the book came out of a discussion that I had with someone from O'Reilly, actually. So I finished writing my first book, which was React Native in Action, and that was with Manning Publications. And I've always wanted to write for O'Reilly, and I've heard good things about writing for O'Reilly as far as the process is concerned. So I kind of like wanted to do that, but I didn't know who to talk to. And I actually went on LinkedIn and just found an acquisition editor and just inboxed her. And I was like, hey, I want to write a book for O'Reilly. And it was it was actually that easy to at least get a conversation going. Of course, from then you have to um, pitch your idea and you have to submit a proposal and yeah. the proposal then gets iterated on and there's pushback and you have to kind of get to the point where you get your idea accepted. And that process was kind of interesting because as it relates to the naming of the book, we kind of were kicking back and forth ideas and the ideas came you know, for me, but also from her around what the demand is and like what's selling and what's popular. And um, a couple of the ideas I had were either around Jamstack, they were around just React in general, and they were also around cloud computing with serverless. And one of the ideas that we were talking about was combining the serverless and the front end stuff. And it really kind of went really well along with what we were already doing at AWS and some of the trends that we were seeing uh, around the adoption of Amplify. And we thought that at first that a lot of the adoption was going to come from existing AWS customers and people familiar with cloud computing. But what we actually saw happening was front-end developers were picking up Amplify and they were kind of using it a lot more than we were seeing adoption from existing AWS customers. So... um, the idea was, you know, this full stack serverless or full stack cloud, you know, that kind of was the path that we were headed towards. So the book came about from that discussion and we went with the name full stack serverless because that's essentially what Amplify enables. And that's what the book is about. It's kind of about building full stack applications with Amplify and almost all of the services that are underlying are serverless technologies. So, you know, it kind of just made a lot of sense. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and it's um, it's funny because that's a, a term. Full stack serverless is something. Actually, I used to use the term serverless side rendering a lot back in the day. I think prior to even the Jamstack term sort of taking off, and it was really just around like I was just trying to attempt to do a bunch of stuff without all the complications of things like server side rendering, uh, managing like full stack monolithic applications. So I'm curious, like with the full stack serverless thing, and I'm I, I assume. Amplify also gives you opportunity to create Lambda functions as well as some other stuff. Like, is that what the whole, like, what you get out of the book, uh, being able to just like piece the console together and make an application? Yeah, essentially, you get kind of all the pieces you need to build a full stack application on the cloud. So, when you think of something like AWS or, or GCP or Firebase or any of these things, you know, you think about the actual back end services, you think about the client 
technologies that need to be there to integrate with those and all of the underlying complexity that a lot of times comes along with making secure calls to these backend services. And I think the problem with AWS in the past was, or, or the challenge, I guess you'd say, was that the AWS JavaScript SDK was the main route for interacting with these services. But the user experience and the developer experience wasn't very friendly for front-end developers, in my opinion. So if I was coming in to AWS and I was trying to build something, it was really hard for me to kind of get going. So what we're trying to do is on our team is we're building out the abstractions and all of the tooling and stuff that's necessary on the client to actually make that process a lot easier. So if you want to talk to an API backed by Lambda function, we have you know, different categories that handle all of the things like headers and signing all of the authorization requests and all of the different uh, tokens that you would need with uh, to have an authenticated request and send all of that data in, in the header, like the refresh token, all of the different tokens um, that you would need, like the identity token and stuff like that. So I, I think full stack serverless is the idea that you can kind of go with one suite of tools and get the ability to generate all of the different services. You get the client APIs that are needed to interact with those services. And you have kind of a way to understand how to actually create these services in the proper way so that they're actually secure and scalable without being a cloud expert. Yeah, And it's full stack in the sense that you're getting the front end and the back end and everything kind of works together. So, And when you say full stack too as well, is this attached to like a certain library or framework? Like, can you build a React app? Can you build a Vue app with this technology? Yeah, so our team has multiple teams within it. So we have a React team, we have a Vue team, we have an Angular team, we have a, now a Flutter team, a native iOS team, and a native Android team. And each team owns each client. So we own all of those clients. So we, if you're a mobile developer and you're building apps with Swift UI, we have a team that is building SDKs and libraries specifically for you. And therefore, we're kind of owning all of that front-end complexity, and we're just providing those libraries. There, and, and we're not kind of offloading those to the open source community. We're building that ourselves, and we're providing those. And we have everything is open source, and you're able to kind of go in there and create issues. So we have a general JavaScript library, but we also have React components and view components and things like that that kind of abstract away even more. I think I may have even talked about this the last time we talked if you need authentication and you need to kind of get up and running really quickly, you know, there's a typical process where you create a sign-in flow, a sign-out flow, and, and you have to handle the state management and all that stuff. Um, we have UI components for all of these different um, frameworks with uh, just a couple of lines of code that kind of just scaffold all this stuff out and make it somewhat configurable and just gives you a really quick way to kind of throw something up to kind of have authentication. And also we have other components around storage and, and other things. Yeah, so are you saying that there's a design system built into the SDK as well? Or is that separate? You know, it's somewhat of a design system in the sense that uh, all of these UI components are consistent in the way that they're designed and you can configure them. Yeah. But there's not any design system in the sense that you would kind of have buttons and, and navigation components and stuff like that that you would use now. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's it's nice to know like where it's sort of the the framework for or this library sort of stops, but also like I'm just sort of zooming out. It's kind of like a great time to be a front end dev, to be quite honest. Like, there's so many things off the shelf. Like, if I I'm an AWS fan, like I guess it was like the first cloud computing platform that sort of spoke to me enough that I could understand it, even though 
as you mentioned before, like it is a confusing console to sort of navigate, which is why the CLI tools exist today to make it even more easier for me. But what I'm getting at is that the fact that like we can pick a design system off the shelf, we can pick where we're going to host this stuff, how we're going to sort of interact with the JavaScript code. It's kind of like mind blowing to think of five, six, seven years ago, front end developing was like essentially jQuery and a bit of CoffeeScript, maybe some JavaScript. And now we've sort of this expanded it to the point where you don't have to make the decision on how the server is running, how you how you're scaling it as well, um, which is even better because now I can, if I'm already using AWS as my technology, I, I know I can tap into the CDN. It's a CDN cloud formation. I, I forget the namings of all the stuff. Yeah, CloudFront. CloudFront, that's right. There's CloudFront. And then, you know, with Amplify, we also have AppSync, which is a GraphQL, you know, as a service that you can kind of use as the API layer. But no, you're right. It's an amazing, amazing time to be a front end developer. I mean, a lot of people complain about things in the front end world. And I understand where they're coming from in, in a certain sense. But there's also a positive light, like you mentioned. All of these things are there. Like, not only is React, you know, they just came out with a new version with no new features. And some people were like, you know, making uh, complaints about that. But most people weren't. Most people are actually pretty positive about it. And I think it's really cool to see that we're to a point where a major framework comes out with a major version without any new features because maybe there's enough already there to make everything already work really well. And then you look at stuff like Gatsby and Next.js that make building um, you know static sites and also whatever you call Next.js with these dynamic routes and API routes so easy. And then you have stuff like Netlify and you have stuff like what Azure is doing with their serverless functions and they're, they're doing a lot of stuff with static sites and front-end stuff. You know, you have GCP with Firebase and they're improving and stuff all the time. I mean, there's so many amazing options. Then you have stuff like Begin. Have you have you looked at Begin yet? Yeah, I, I've... I was going to make a, a very bad pun, but yes, in the beginning of Begin, um, <laughs> I've been circling back to them because they're doing some pretty cool stuff with functions. And I think they sort of figured out the product. Uh, when I looked at it about two years ago, they were sort of trying to figure out the experience and they've, I think, just came out of a pivot. But yeah, it's something I should probably have Brian and, and possibly Ryan on to chat about that. Yeah, yeah. So all this stuff is really great. So if you want to build a full stack application, with the same infrastructure that companies like Netflix use. You could literally do that in like 30 minutes with one of these guides that you can find on the getting started pages for these different backend technologies, quote unquote, full stack serverless technologies or, or jam stack technologies. Yeah. And it really is, it really is pretty amazing. And it's, it's pretty mind blowing. I mean, the abstraction is really high, you know, in some of this stuff and it is a lot of magic going on. And a lot of people are going to be, put off by some of that because they're going to be like, okay, I want to know everything that's going on. And when you start digging into it, there is a lot of complexity. So if you build a, a Gatsby app and you want to know like what's going on, you start opening the source code. Yeah, there's a lot of complexity, but what it gives you is, is super powerful and it is pretty configurable. And I think as long as people are building the the right escape patches into these things, then it is extremely, extremely powerful because not only are you getting all of this great power, you know, I guess. Yeah. And I hate to say powerful and power, but yeah, you're getting all this power, (laughs) but you're also being able to kind of have that escape patch. So if there's something that isn't supported, you're able to still do that thing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, uh, speaking of building companies on all this magic, like one of the the companies I cite all the time uh, when it comes to like AWS and S3 and how they sort of unlocked that magic was uh, Instagram. You know, are you familiar with the story of Instagram and how they got started? 
I'm not too familiar other than I know that they had like a really small dev team. Yeah, no, they got acquired, I think, with 11 or 14 people for a billion dollars to Facebook. But the way they got started was through image hosting. Because at the time, like if you want to do like a, a photo sharing app or whatnot, you had to run your own servers, like in your kitchen or your bedroom or whatever, just to get up and running. And then you'd go buy server space somewhere else. But they ended up leveraging S3 and AWS pretty early on in their sort of career or their startup infancy. So because of that decision, they were able to scale and grow where other photo sharing apps on iOS could not. So because of that, they were able to do like really cool things. So like the, one of the problems that they had was that they had to, the uploading to S3 took time. So during that time, they had to figure out what to do while the, the user was waiting to upload the photo. So they created filters. So the entire time you pick your filter for Instagram back in the day, and now it happens instantly at this point. But while you were picking your filter for Instagram, it was uploading in the background. Mm, interesting. So a lot of that trickery that we see in a lot of sites, uh, the anticipated loading, like those are things that I think about uh, and the side projects that I work on where I'm like, ah, you know, this is going to take some time. Like I could go down and fine tune and then like, you know, put on the gloves and start trying to figure out what servers and what places to put things. Or I could just do some really cool front end trickery and like some animations and make it beautiful. So like that's a story I think about a lot when I build front end UIs. Uh, I was like, you know, I can make it better and make it faster, which I should, or I can ship it, have people use it and then have them tell me what's more important to do. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do as front end devs is essentially that just sleight of hand. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, a lot of the people that I'll learn the most from were the engineers that were just really good at coming up with ways to do that. And and I think that's part of becoming, you know, a good developer sometimes is figuring that out and finding your way of doing that because there isn't really always a right way to do things and and there's just more along the lines of doing things that work well for you or that just work well, period. Speaking of learning from developers, like I've, I've chatted with Tim from Next.js a couple times, which I want to have him on the podcast hopefully soon. Probably like the fourth time I've called him out in person <laughs> on the podcast and like I should have him on. But what I'm getting at is that I, I just built a Next.js app this week and literally like yesterday. It took me a couple hours. Uh, I had an idea for, I'm going to be selling stickers uh, and giving away stickers for my side project. So I figured out, you know, I spent all this time on the UI and the the brand. I might as well make some stickers. So I threw together a Next.js uh, site after some conversations in Discord. I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. But I just, what I'm getting at is like the the sleight of hand, the, the trickery they're doing to do like handover server side rendering and then static routes and all that magic that happens. Uh, it's kind of mind blowing. And like this is something that four and a half years ago when I started this podcast was not something that was easy to do. So much that I would avoid server side rendering with all cost. Like, don't even touch it. And then now it's like, oh, I just create next app. I've got it out of the box. And I just make sure my routes match and I'm good to go. Like, that kind of blows me away that I can just take advantage of someone else's hard work uh, thanks to open source. <laughs> and I can just move on. And like, similar to Amplify, like connecting all the stuff that I want to do in AWS and just give me something like a nice layer of and like actual human readable documentation that I can just, I want to do login. Let me find the authentication layer. Okay, it works. Now I can do the next thing. I don't have to spend like weeks on top of weeks on trying to make sure, you know, my secrets and security and everything like that is secure. It's just I get it out of the box, which is a again great time to be a front end dev. Yeah, and you called out uh, Next.js and Tim, and we have to say Versal and Guillermo and that entire team. And he is to me just one of the most amazing people to watch, and he's just so smart, and and his entire team is just so good, and the stuff that they do is like 
kind of next level in the sense that, you know, they just are innovating in so many ways. And it's just amazing to watch. And it's, it's just one of the many tools that are out there, the services and things that, that you can just pick up as a front end dev and their docs are really good. Everything just works really well. You know, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. And I, so I wanted to take a step back and talk more about the book itself and that process. Cause you actually kind of unearthed a lot of questions I had about writing a book. I've been approached to write a Jamstack book in the past and I've politely declined because I, I just feel like I can write a blog post, but when it comes to writing a book, it seems like such a big workload to do. So I'm curious of how you sort of broke that up into be able to ship something. Uh, what was that process like? Yeah, absolutely. So this is my second book. So I've had a bit of experience at this point, and I've learned a lot from the first one and from the second one. And I feel a lot more confident now about even writing another one. I I would say after my first book, I was a little discouraged about writing because the process was so long and it was so much work. And, you know, the payoff that you get is kind of you're you're not sure like what's going to happen when the book gets out. And then there's the discussion around uh, should you self-publish? Or should you go with a well-known publisher? And I have some pretty good, you know, idea around uh, my opinion there and stuff. But um, I would say the process is kind of just like anything when you're trying to undertake something very big. Like if you go into a very large code base or you're trying to learn something new, you typically just want to break it down into to the smaller chunks and look at it that way and understand that. For writing a book, it's just going to be a long, consistent process, like a marathon that you have to work at every day to get there. And you kind of have to focus on the end goal. Like, you know, remember one day this book will be in paper form and you will be done with it and you will reap some benefits from it, even if it's just having your hands on a finished book. If that's the reward, that should be good enough. And anything else is just kind of additional. So don't like, I was just always focused on, um, you know, having a finished book. And that was kind of like the thing I always looked towards. And to get started, you would probably approach a publisher. And if you're a decent developer, there are enough publishers out there actually looking for people to write books that you can at least get a conversation going with the acquisition editor, and that's probably who you would want to talk to. Find them on LinkedIn or find me on LinkedIn and ask me, and I'll try to refer you to a couple. And then from there, you're going to propose something and you're going to um, probably have a discussion around what you're going to be proposing, like the titles and what's there and why you're the right person to kind of write the book. And then once you figure out the topic, you're going to propose a table of contents. And once you get that table of contents done, then you have that entire proposal that they're going to take. And they're going to kind of like look at not just the acquisition editor, but maybe some other people in in the company. I'm not sure exactly how that goes, but a bunch of people are going to review that and they're going to either approve it or they're not going to approve it. And if they approve it, then that means you kind of have a book deal and you may or may not get some money up front for that. And you're just going to have a bunch of deadlines that kind of go along with that table of contents. And you're going to say, okay, a month from now, I have to have chapter one, two months, chapter two. And you're just going to work every day or however like your schedule is to kind of ship that book. And you're going to have a lot of um, review that goes along with that. So you finish the book or you finish a chapter, people are going to be reviewing it and they're going to be giving you feedback and you have to go back and redo a lot of stuff. And in the case of my first book, I had to go back and rewrite like three or four chapters. And that was really tough for me. And, and it was really discouraging because, you know, I'd spent so much time doing the work that for to have someone come back and be like, oh, you have to completely rewrite this. It was well, It kind of sucked, you know. 
But my first book was React Native in Action, and it, it did fairly well. But I feel like this next book that I've done has gotten a lot better. It's been a lot more well-received, and I think it's sold a lot more copies already. And I think it's mainly because React Native in Action was, was focused on React Native, and I think there's just more developers interested in AWS and that are using React and GraphQL. So this book is actually, I think, um, at one point, it was sold out on Amazon after it came out. And I've had so many people reach out to me on LinkedIn and Twitter and, and different places, email saying that they bought it and that they're reading it. And I've had good uh, response from the editor, O'Reilly. And of course, being with O'Reilly probably helped. And also the fact that I launched this book with like 40,000 Twitter followers, yeah. whereas the last book I launched with like 2,000 <laughs> probably also helped. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to know, but I would say it's definitely worth it to write a book. The the things that came out of my first book weren't really the book sales and, and the money. It was more around, oh, you wrote React Native in action. I am going to hire you to be a consultant at like this really high rate because you obviously know what you're doing. That was what I got out of my first book. I don't really know what I'm going to get out of this book, um, but so far just finishing it was enough for me and I'm extremely happy to be done with it. And I think that what I wrote in this book was a distillation of kind of what I've learned over the last three years. And if I had just started at AWS and I had had this book, I would have maybe taken a year's worth of the work that I had done to learn this stuff. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Like, this is the book I kind of would have written for myself. And I know a lot of people say that, and I, and I think that's a really good approach because if you want to teach something to someone, teach it in the way that you would want to have like taught it to yourself. And that's kind of the way I, I did with this book. Excellent. Yeah. And how long did it take you to sort of complete the, from start to finish? So this book wasn't that long. It was like maybe a eight or nine month process. And my first book was much longer. And I think that's just because this book is a little shorter. I think it's 11 chapters. And also I have to say working with O'Reilly has been really, really nice. And they're very, very quick to respond. And, and the feedback they give is very good and very concise and very actionable. Excellent. Yeah, I look forward to picking it up. Hopefully, it's not uh, sold out anymore. But uh, yeah, definitely gonna grab that. Uh, so all those concepts between learning AWS, but also Amplify as well as GraphQL. Like those are all things that I'm super, super into right now. And it's good to the one thing I like about picking up books on even technologies I already know is that I always find out something that I didn't know by just learning from other people, watching a screencast, going to their conference talks. Uh, I always just find out like uh, this brand new things just. Top of mind, just a couple of weeks ago, I learned a new Git command out of the blue because I was pairing with somebody, and I didn't realize that you could do Git remote update, and that basically just grabs it grabs your remotes, but also updates at the same time, which is kind of like if you did Git fetch. Anyway, that's too much in the weeds, <laughs> off topic, but no, I, t I totally get it. I'm I'm always always learning something from someone. Uh, I love Twitter because I see so many different people sharing so much interesting stuff. I love Egghead because I, I learn from those short, concise videos. I love YouTube. Yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. And I'm always picking up books. Yeah, can I ask, uh, how did you get uh, 40,000 Twitter followers from 2,000 as someone who is on their way to 40,000 from 4,000? <laughs> well, I think working at a big company helps for sure. And from there, you kind of have people assume that maybe like they would probably be more likely to follow you. And I've just been consistently talking about stuff on Twitter, trying to make jokes, memes, get involved in like interesting conversations, sharing stuff and noticing like what people 
respond to and what they don't respond to and trying to kind of gravitate my tweets towards that. I don't want to be one of those people that just says stuff just for uh, engagement, like I've seen happen a lot in some areas. But I do notice what people seem to respond to. And I do try to tailor what I say towards that. So if I'm going to share something, I will try to word it in a way that I think is going to get more engagement than not. So yeah, there's definitely some thought to it. Just being consistent and sharing stuff and trying to kind of make it part of my daily routine to respond to people and get in interesting conversations over time has gotten to that point. I mean, it it didn't happen uh, like overnight. It's definitely happened over the course of the last three years, you know, a few hundred followers a month or whatever over time. Yeah. And I would say that the the pictures of your wife's uh, cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, I like those all the time. Man, food is like my thing. I mean, you know, everyone loves food, right? But like, um, no, I love talking about food on Twitter and posting pictures. And I think that um, a lot of people, so I'm Palestinian and my wife and all of my my wife's family and even my own family is always cooking interesting and delicious Palestinian and Arabic food. So I always post that. So if you're interested in that, follow me on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I need to start responding because I always have questions. I show my wife. I'm like, hey, what is this? Like, I, we need to make these things. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll jump in the conversation next time you you have dinner and you post it for sure. Yeah, if you ever need recipes, hit me up. Um, if you ever come in near Mississippi, hit me up. We'll have you over. <laughs> Excellent, cool. And um, yeah, so as we're winding down, I want to switch to picks, but I, I want also want to briefly ask about the Jamstack CMS and how that's going because I know you're you launched that uh, must have been like at least a, a year or two ago. Is that also mentioned in the book, or is that just uh, completely aside from it? Okay, so yeah, it's actually. It's a full stack serverless project, and it's a great example of why I think this is a really great space to be in. And we didn't really talk about infrastructure as code, which kind of goes along with what that Jamstack CMS is and what full stack serverless is. But I mean, Jamstack CMS, I launched it in October of last year, so it's been around for almost a year. And then I also launched uh, Jamstack e-commerce, and I'm about to launch uh, Jamstack e-commerce with a backend, which is a full-stack serverless project. But essentially, like one of the really powerful things about a full-stack serverless app is that it can be shared and redeployed. So people can actually build out reference architectures and, and example projects that tie the front-end and the back-end together for a a boilerplate. Essentially, like if you think of a lot of the React or Gatsby and Jamstack boilerplates that you see, they're just the front end. And as a developer, I think it would be really cool to be able to also have the back end for that. In the past, you couldn't really do that because if you needed to provision a server and write a database, all that stuff took a lot of uh, backend knowledge. And of course, it wasn't really able to be abstracted away. But with infrastructure as code and some of the different things that we're seeing happen around infrastructure as code, and uh, for me, there's CDK, which is extremely interesting, allows you to write Python or JavaScript to create infrastructure. I think Terraform is about to come out with their version of it. Amplify CLI is a way to create infrastructure as code using a CLI. And then there's this new thing I just saw. I think it's called Adapt or something like that. Adapt.js is like React for infrastructure as code. You're able to React create React components. But the thing with Jamstack CMS, I think with uh, all of the full stack serverless stuff is you have two artifacts from your project. You have a front end and you have a back end that is able to be shared and redeployed. So if I build like a photo sharing app, 
I can actually give the link to my GitHub repo to you, and you can then deploy that entire backend and the front end and then iterate on that and kind of create your own version. That's one of the really powerful things about it. And Jamstack CMS is essentially a full stack CMS. And I think when I get to V1 with that, it's actually going to be mainly focused on just the CMS part and be agnostic about the front end. Uh, I'm going to provide a front end, but I think the real power there is uh, allowing people to kind of have a way to um, generate and host and deploy their own CMS that is just running on serverless technologies, which means you're not going to be paying a monthly fee for your CMS like you would with some of these other things. Instead, you will just be paying for the resources as they're used in a serverless manner. And I think there's a lot of future for that. I don't know if my project is going to be the one that, that nails it, but I think it's a good kind of proof of concept and we'll see where it goes. Wow, that's excellent. Yeah, I completely brain farted on Jamstack e-commerce. I remember you that getting tweeted out a while ago because I, I just built a basically e-commerce site in Next.js. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> to sell stickers. And yeah, it would be nice to know to actually think of this first too as well because all the infrastructure is here. Uh, it looks like it's actually powered by Stripe as well. Yep. So I recommend, yeah, it looks like Jamstack CMS.org itself. All those projects you mentioned are sitting right there waiting for people to use them. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm actually working on um, another kind of org called Full Stack Serverless. And um, it's going to be open to any Full Stack Serverless backend. So uh, Azure, Firebase, Netlify, anything that you can actually create infrastructure as code in. I would be you know, hoping to get pull requests and stuff from those. And it actually hasn't been officially launched yet because I haven't finished the number of projects that I like. I would like to launch with five projects that I'm working on, um, a chat app, a blog, uh, a full end-to-end authentication flow, a couple of other things like e-commerce. So I'm, I'm building those right now. But right now, you can go ahead and check it out. I have CDK and Amplify, and that's what's going to be launched with. But I'm going to be completely open to having other people add other providers. Essentially, it'll be kind of like the back end and the front end, kind of like what I'm talking about. So if you want to kind of get started with an app and you know you need authentication and you know you're going to be using uh, web technologies, you can kind of start from a place and then take it from there. Excellent. Yeah, I'm definitely going to start kicking the tires on this thing. And I look forward to uh, trying out for one of my future projects. I'm, I'm doing an overhaul on my, my blog and a couple other sites that have sort of got a little crusty and uh, haven't really been touched a lot. <laughs> um, so I'm actually picking different tools to migrate them to just for to keep my brain up to speed. You know, as a, a developer who's been around the block for a bit, like I just want to make sure I'm keeping up to date with some things on some of these side projects. So uh, I think I might grab one of those. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, leverage your Jamstack CMS for sure, and then as well as the the book and the future org as well. I'm gonna keep an eye on out for that. So I wanted to transition us to picks. I uh, appreciate the conversation, full stack serverless, uh, the book, talking about Amplify, talking about Jamstack as a whole, and just a front of the dev. I hope everybody's got uh, real good insights from this conversation, and um, I think we could all find each other on Twitter as well. Actually, what is your Twitter? Since we we spent some time talking about it, yes, it's Dabit three D A B I T and the number three. Yeah, why, why uh, three? Same with GitHub. Um, I think that was just a you know a username I found early on, and I just copied it across all of my my different social media stuff. Excellent. And if and no no one's asking, but I'm bwo on Twitter as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I want to transition us to the picks. Uh, these are jam picks, things that we're jamming on. Usually, it could be tech related, music, food related, movies. I know we're all spending a lot of time at home, so we got pretty much could check all those boxes. But if you don't mind, I'll go first and give your brain some time to think of a pick. I wanted to first talk about, so I mentioned my YouTube channel 
last week, which if you go to youtube.com slash I like robot, that is my YouTube channel. It's a URL. Uh, it used to be the channel I, I sort of recorded and put music on when I was in college. So that's why it's called I like robot. For whatever reason, I cannot figure out how to change it because it's so old. Uh, I guess you can only change your YouTube name once. And I changed it like in 2008 when I first got it. But anyway, that's besides the fact. Uh, that's the Brian Douglas YouTube. I'm doing some screencasts, and I mentioned that last week uh, in the last podcast, uh, which is Get Action Traction. But I wanted to also mention, because you're here, I, I saw a tweet a couple years ago around how to record screencast, and you had mentioned like you should record it and then like redub the audio or some sort of forum. But anyway, I specifically remember a tweet that you sent, which is the way I do screencast today, which is I will record the entire screencast, like one take, and then I'll chop it down to like if it was going to be the final take. And then I'll just take the, the actual video of the screencast and I'll just do the audio again while the video is going. So what I've been doing is I've been using this uh, tool called Transcriptor, which is built on AWS Transcribe. And uh, so one of my friends uh, down in San Diego, Jay Miller. So he's KJ Miller. If you look on his repos, uh, one of them is Transcriptor. Uh, he built this Python tool to basically take any audio and video and transcribe that audio and video into words. And then that's what I do to redub my audio on my screencast. Uh, and I basically got my screencast recording down to only two takes. So I do one take, it works, I chop it up, make sure it looks good, and then I record it one more time with the transcription. And then I've got transcriptions for the final thing, if I want to use transcriptions for closed captioning. And then I also have actual like clean audio, where it doesn't sound like I'm doing ums and ahs and all that other stuff. Hands down, it's probably been like the best way to do screencasts for work and for side project reasons. And I'm super appreciative of uh, stumbling on your tweet years ago. I don't know if you remember that tweet or remember your your pattern for screencast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the way I do it. I mean, it works great for me. Other people have their own ways, but I think this seems to be a really efficient way to do it. This way, I'm not wasting a ton of time. I just have to, I know I have to do both. Like you do the first take and the second take, but that's it. You don't really have any other things that you have to do after that. Yeah, and timing-wise, uh, if you go to Netlified or Docs, some of those videos are me, still me. So that was when I first did my first ever streamcast, like probably five years ago. And then after I did those, it like I spent like probably like a Friday, like this recording all these two-minute videos. But it took me half a day to do because I didn't know what to do and how to approach it and how to plan it. So I just figured it out then. And then I ended up seeing this tweet uh, of you explaining how you did your screencast. So I was like, ah. Oh genius so ever since then i've able to sort of optimize awesome i did have one more pick too as well being in the house uh with my six-year-old we played a lot of super smash brothers ultimate which is sort of like a nice trip down memory lane like i when i was a kid the smash brothers on 64 was like that had been out i played that and i was like pretty boss on that i am not great at smash brothers today <laughs> uh, so i've got a lot of learning to do but um Big fan of the uh, the switch and uh, leveraging Smash Brothers. So everybody grab a copy and uh, if you DM me, follow me on Twitter and then DM me and I'll tell you my Nintendo handle and we'll we'll battle. Cool. So you got some picks. I guess my picks are going to be um, a couple of people that I've been following on Twitter that are doing some cool stuff. The first one is Catalan Marone. So it's C A T A L I N M I R O N, and he's doing some really really cool stuff with React Native. And uh, React Native has always been my thing, and I'm always interested in seeing what people are doing. And he's doing some really interesting stuff with animations and just UI stuff. He's been creating some really cool videos and, and releasing the code that goes along with that. So that's someone I would check out, and I'm pretty interested in that. And then there's Jan Sui. He's the Burning Monk on Twitter. 
And he's doing a lot of interesting stuff around serverless. So if you're interested in just really raw serverless stuff in the sense that he's doing stuff closer to, you know, using CDK and serverless framework and stuff like that, or just direct AWS services. He's creating a lot of really great content. He does uh, free blog posts and videos and stuff, but he also has a couple of paid courses. And he's someone I really am interested in and I enjoy following. And then the last person is Kilo Loco. He's uh, someone that joined our team at AWS about two months ago. And he has a really good YouTube channel. And I've learned a lot from his videos because he's really great. He's a really popular YouTuber, but he's really great at kind of creating content. And I've, I've learned a lot from his videos, but I also really enjoy watching his videos. He has videos around like getting into tech and some of the things that have happened you know, during his career that he's kind of talked about that are pretty interesting. He also has technical videos around using SwiftUI and, and of course, some of the stuff that we're doing on our team at Amplify. Very cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully everybody can find those those links in the show notes. Uh, again, Matter, thanks for coming on, chatting about the full stack serverless and uh, listeners keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 